Hello, welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, and human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now, here's your host, two-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kosowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Millionaire Woman Show. And if this is the first time you're here, we're super excited to have you. And we're going to talk about leadership, business, and life. So we talk about things that help you live your life rich from the inside out. And today I have a special guest, a mentor of mine, Corey Poirier, a multi-time TEDx speaker, Mo Mondays PMX speaker, and he is also the host of the top-rated Conversations with Passion radio show, founder of the speaking program, and has been featured on multiple television specials, a columnist with Entrepreneur and Forbes. He has been featured on CBS, CTV, NBC, and ABC, and is one of the few leaders featured twice on the popular Entrepreneur on Fire show. He has also interviewed 5,000 of the world's top leader, and I am proud to say that he is my mentor. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you so much, Deborah. I'm so excited to be here. And I want to add that you're, uh, I don't know the exact number over 5,000 now, but you're in that mix now. So I just wanted to add that in too. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. And I'm so grateful that you're here because I think it's so important for people to really step into who they're meant to be. So I want to dive into when did you decide that you were going to be a speaker, that this was your calling, this purpose? So here's the interesting part. I don't know if it was a decision or if it was thrust upon me. And when I say that, I know, you know, sometimes people say I had no choice because my passion just found me and that type of thing. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at the fact that I was actually tricked into finding my passion. So to explain what that means, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you hear it. But essentially, I had a stage play in a fringe festival which is a weird way to start to say how I got into speaking. But uh, what happened was I was terrified about the idea of being on a stage, which is kind of ironic. And so what happened was one of the actors sprained his ankle and he was the lead actor and he needed extra time for his costume changes. So I had to write myself apart into the play I didn't want to be acting in. I was the writer director, but didn't want to be in the play. I had to write a part. Now I really got away with not facing the audience by actually, uh, shuffling onto the stage wearing a Hulk Hogan t-shirt and a big wig and not and with my back to the audience so that was my comfort level did that for about four days of the show and then asked one of the actors at the end of this show's run any ideas for how I can get over this fear because obviously I need to and he said I heard about the stand-up comedy workshop at the local university so uh, we attended the workshop. It was two weeks. All we really learned is how here's how you adjust a mic stand uh, for the number one fear in the world which public speaking is the number one fear in the world about death, but stand-up comedy is even further above that. It's just that it's so few people ever try to just lump it in with public speaking. And so what happened was um, we had no real training. We were, uh, the third week we were told we were going to watch people entertain us. We filled the club. We marketed the show. But five minutes of showtime, we're looking for the entertainers. Anybody probably sees where this is going that's listening right now or watching. Uh, we asked the guy, put us in this mess, you know, where, where are the entertainers? And he said, oh, you guys are the entertainers. Didn't I tell you? 
And so we found it with five minutes notice, no material. We were the entertainers. So I jokingly, but it's true, said I went into the bathroom to try to find an exit window to get out of there. And I came back out and of the 15 that took that workshop, eight were gone at the door already within like two minutes. Wow. And so now the debate is who's going to go up first. So finally I jumped up on stage because I'd been to Toastmasters once and learned that if you're going to face a fear like this, go up first. And so I jumped on stage, grabbed the mic, told uh, two jokes to dead silence. And the sweat starts rolling down my chin and face. And uh, finally, the guy that did get us into this mess calls me over to the corner of the stage, gives me a schmuck in the back of the head. And he says, you idiot, what are you doing? We haven't even turned the mic on yet. And so my <laughs> first time ever on a stage telling jokes, nobody could hear me. And so we turned the mic on. I told the same two jokes again, and they bombed again. And I said that I'm probably one of the only comics in Canadian history who's told the same jokes twice in 10 minutes and bombed both times. But the end result is I started going back week after week because I realized that I had survived on that stage. And then this is where the story finishes up. Essentially, as I was doing the stand-up and liking certain parts and not digging parts at all, I discovered this little thing called public speaking. And then I discovered that people like Tony Robbins were getting paid to speak in public. And I was like, wait a minute. I can get all the stuff I love about stand-up from this thing and avoid the stuff I don't like and get paid more to do it? Wow, where do I sign up? And then that started what I thought would be like a, a month-long transition and then I'd be booked forever and then discovered the speaking business is a lot tougher than I thought. But that was a long way to say, Deborah, that's how I discovered this thing of public speaking is I was, I was tricked into it. So I didn't really find it on my own. It was, I guess, shown to me and then, then I was slapped in the face with a white glove. So what made you decide to make speaking your career? So, you know, that, that's an interesting question because I was in a corporate career at the time when I started uh, moving in that direction. And I was doing quite well in my corporate career. And I, I liked it. I won't say I still loved it. I've been doing it 10 years. Uh, I was selling photocopiers door to door. And so I actually was one of those few people that's crazy enough to actually had liked that business, but I saw the writing on the wall as well. The industry had changed from the point where when I started, you could sell a fax machine and make thousands of dollars of commission. And then we started seeing most of the same fax machines showing up at Staples for $200. Like this is over a period of a few years. And then all of a sudden the color copiers that we used to sell and make a really nice healthy commission on, we were getting paid less than we used to make on the fax machines. So it's like, would you invest in this business on the outside in? And most people would say no. So I saw the writing on the wall. And so what I did was I, when I started transitioning and doing some speaking, I was doing it uh, part-time using my vacation days, my evenings, weekends even, whenever it was a weekend gig. So I was using that time to build the speaking business. And I also was teaching at a local community college on sales and people were uh, hiring me because they couldn't bring all their staff to the, to the uh, college. So they would ask if I could go in. And so that stuff started building it. And then what happened was, um, even though I was ready to leave that industry I mentioned, I thought I need to do it right. And I need to do it with a way that at least there's some cash flow behind this thing if I'm going full time. So I took a position with a software company, a year long contract. And then the decision was, do I want to move uh, from a part of Canada to California uh, or another uh, part of Canada to another part of Canada to stay with the company or do I want to move on because they didn't you know they, their idea was okay you've been with us a year you you know you know the business and all that now we don't want to keep paying for your office there we'd rather move you into one of our offices so ultimately I made the decision at that point 2006 to go full-time as a speaker and I started part-time 2002 
Uh, so 17 years I've been going at it, but 2006 is when I went full-time and I haven't looked back. So the answer to the question is when did I decide and, and why did I decide? I decided at that point and I mainly decided because I was tired of my um, future being in the hands of corporate companies that I was working for. That's really, and, and also I guess it's important to add, I could see that this was my calling and what I love doing more than what I was currently doing. So where do you get your ideas as to what to speak on so that it hits the audiences that you want to be hired for? So I write down notes and I record notes of things that I see. So to explain what I mean by that, okay, there's two sides. One, I go by my background. So if I'm speaking on sales, let's say, and I had a really long sales career, well, I can pull from stories that happened when I was in sales. I can pull, like, so if I want to do a talk about, um, or if I'm doing a talk and I want to talk about, let's say, um, the most effective way to cold call, let's just say that was it, then what I can do is I can draw from stories I had where people did it poorly and people did it really well that I worked with and share those stories. So I can call, so one part is from my, my history and from what I witnessed that way. Another part is if I'm doing, let's say, a talk on customer service, well, I pay attention when I'm traveling because I travel a lot. And when I get a really big wow that you don't see anywhere or I get a really big I don't even know what the opposite word of wow is, but uh, a really big, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Either of those two happen, I take notes of that. And I, I, you know, I, I, I think you can cultivate storytelling because I certainly wasn't a storyteller when I started. If you saw my early stand-up, you'd know that. Um, so I can tell you I wasn't a storyteller, but I think you can work that muscle. And so now what's happened is I'll take a story that happens to me and I don't, I don't ever falsify it or make up a story, but I do Hollywoodize it. So I find the points that, um, that are true, and then I find a way to heighten them. So uh, for instance, I had recently, I was at a fast gas, which you'll be familiar with because I was in Alberta at the time. Yeah. And uh, there was eight people on the line, and the, there was a guy at the front, and he's kind of almost screaming into his phone, talking to somebody while the lady at the front is waiting for him to, to go to the cash so she can get to the next person. And so first of all, when I tell that story, uh, there were probably three people and I had changed it to eight, you know, like I, I made this story I got, and I don't even know why, but I made this story a little different, uh, because maybe it seems like there's more people waiting in the line. So I heightened that part of it. Um, and then when I talk about how, and this is the story, basically he was on the phone, he ignored her. Finally, he got to the cash he paid. We all got through the line when I get to the front and this part's all true. But when I get to the front, I was just starting to say, that's gotta be so frustrating. And she pulled out her phone and started talking and said, I'll be with you in a second or started typing on it. And so her phone, I don't remember what color it was. I said her pink phone. So I changed the color to pink. Right. My, my point is, is that I guess embellishes the word. I don't ever fabricate or make up a story, but I see a story and then I, I feel what's going to bring that story more to life. Like the pink color is going to vibrant that story for somebody and right. make the story resonate with them more or being in a longer line than three people is going to resonate more. So I try to heighten it a little bit. Uh, but the point is, is how the stories come to me is I witness them happen. I take notes, whether it's recording or writing it, and then I keep it with me until I need that story. Uh, or I can, I can be doing a, a live talk and that story pops in my head. And if I have time to do it, I'm going to, and it's the right place to do it. I'll insert the story while I'm in the middle of a new talk or a talk in general. Uh, what I also will do is if I'm doing a talk on customer service and that happens to me on the way to the talk, that now becomes a story within the talk. So that's kind of how I come up with stories, but also I guess sort of how, to, how I insert them, insert them in as well. 
And I like how you talk about it's their everyday stories. Like someone could see the next time they see a pink phone, they could be triggered to your story. Or if they're in a lineup and they see someone talking on their phone, they're like, oh, I remember that Corey guy, he was talking about this, right? And then it starts to resonate. And I think some of those aha moments don't happen at the time of the talk. And that's been my experience. Sometimes I'll get a message later saying, Deb, I had these aha moments because I was, wasn't ready to receive it or something didn't come to make it relevant. And suddenly, boom, there it was, right? And it made me think of everything that you said after that. Yeah, to that point, one of the things that I do as well, and I also should add, I agree with that to the extent that I just was at a Brendan Burchard conference just uh, about three weeks ago, and he shared this story. And, you know, I told that story to probably 30 people now, his story, because to your point, it resonated with me and how he shared it resonated with me. And so we hear a lot of times how people leave a talk and they're jazzed up and then they don't do anything with it. But I think sometimes we forget, though, it only takes one little story that stays with you that now it's incorporated into your life to make the difference. And so to your point about what I do, I actually intentionally, even my slides, so my slides are typically uh, visuals. So in that story, my slides might be a picture of people standing in a line and a pink cell phone. So not only am I wanting to put it in your head, I'm also trying to put it in your head within a visual as well. So every time, as you said, you see a pink phone, not only are you going to remember I said a pink phone, but now you've actually seen the pink phone when you're at my talk too. So yeah. there's a better chance you're going to think of that phone story. So slides or no slides? That's the question, right? When people are doing presentations, whether it be in a boardroom setting, whether it be public speaking, what's your thought? So I'm going to say it, and it depends because there's various different answers to that. One is what does the client prefer? So when I say that, even though there's been a push to say, let's do away with slides from speakers and some clients. There's more clients in my experience still to this day that say, okay, uh, we have the laptop set up, we'll have PowerPoint running, uh, or, the, or we'll have uh, the, everything set up for you, the projector, what have you. Uh, are you gonna use PowerPoint or which one are you gonna use? So the client's automatically assuming that, and they have other presentations that day that have that. So they have more of a comfort, not they, but some clients have more of a comfort with you doing a PowerPoint. So I think first of all, you have to ask the client. If you're working for a client, especially, and you're getting paid, you need to ask them. If you don't want to do a PowerPoint, you need to ask. And if you want to do a PowerPoint, it's easy because you just say, well, I was planning to use PowerPoint. Um, just wondering if that'll work within the setup. So my point is, first of all, ask the client is one thing. Let's say the client says, we don't care, because that still comes back to answering your question fully. Um, what I would say to that is then it goes to the point of what do you prefer? And the second part is, what's going to serve you best? Because you might prefer not to have a PowerPoint, but if you're going to be all over the map, not finish on time, not remember your stories, forget what's not happening on stage, then I would say you need PowerPoint. Or, and PowerPoint's just an example, but you need some visual. Now, the next part I'll say about it though, and this is the part where I teach people to get away from bullet points and all these wordy PowerPoint things, is that doesn't mean when I say all this that you have to have a PowerPoint filled with stuff. You can have, what I just said, a visual of an image, and hopefully as you start uh, cultivating your storytelling ability, that one picture tells you the whole story you're gonna share. So, and where I got that from is I'm always all about studying the, the world-class speakers and seeing what do they do differently and how can I incorporate this? And I was getting tripped up by having, I wanted the PowerPoint to keep me to time because I'm a high energy person and I could go over. So I want that as my, uh, I'm going to say crutch to keep me to time. But I didn't like the idea of all these bullet points and people having to read it because if, if they have to read the whole thing, then I must have to ship it to them and not show up. And so that's, that was my challenge. So what I did is I watched the best speakers I could find and 
in particular, Steve Jobs' presentations, when I watched them on YouTube, he just had like a picture, if, if he even had one, but he always had a PowerPoint. And he'd just have a picture of, let's say, the new iPhone, if he had one. If he didn't, it would be in his pocket, and he'd then surprise people with it. But either way, it was a visual. So he'd have a picture of an iPhone on the screen, and that was it. He didn't have to have it say 15 words, just a picture of an iPhone. And I'm like, well, I've been working on my storytelling for a while. Why can't I do that? And so that's how it came to life. So my answer is, if you ask me, what do I do? I found still the majority of clients want PowerPoint. So because that's the case, I use PowerPoint, but I also then go one step further and use PowerPoint to help me and support me, not replace me. And so what does that mean? It means that my slides, when you see them, all you have to do is look at a picture. You don't have to write stuff down if you don't want. You don't have to do anything other than look at a picture, which really is almost the same as having no slides, except for the one benefit, you get to see a visual. So yes. I think I just maybe gave you three different choices because the truth is yes. it really still comes back to the client. And then if they're okay with it, what do you feel comfortable with? Absolutely. Because when I, after being a speaker for a while, you, when you go to events, you don't look at them the same way. <laughs> You're sitting there thinking, okay, what, what's going right? What's, what do I not want to do in my own presentations? And one of the things that I uh, really notice is that some people, maybe it's because they're a beginner speaker and there's nothing wrong with that because we all start somewhere, is to use that PowerPoint as a crutch, that they have lots of text on it. And that text, they end up turning to the slide and they're reading the slide versus being able to share the stories of impact. And I find that to me, that's a bit frustrating because it's like you didn't prepare or you don't know your presentation in the way you should. Whereas for myself, I like what you said is you have a picture and then it acts as a trigger. It acts as a prompt and then you can go into it. Um, one of the things when I, one of my first talks, I, I watched a video of it and it, I was so worried about missing you know, some people say notes, no notes. Um, I was so worried about missing the perfect words of a quote. Now looking back, I could say, you know, don't quote me on this, but this person <laughs> said this, and this is what I'm saying in my own words. It would have been so much more effective than, or because I didn't have PowerPoint at the time, but I did walk over, but it felt like there was that delay in time to go look at my sheet to say, this is that quote. I think the impact is not the same as me just being there in the moment and not worrying if I forgot the words because who in the audience knows. And so to that point, here's what I say. And, and so I agree with you completely because I used to do exactly uh, what you just said that you ran into and then I switched it. And so what I do now is I'll say, um, you know, here's, this is my favorite, let's just say as an example, this is my favorite Zig Ziglar quote. Now, let me add that it's paraphrased at best because I'm going by memory with this. And then that forgives everything you say after that. And so, in fact, one of, I just posted yesterday a Zig Ziglar quote on my Facebook page. And I still, even when I, I posted it and probably looked at it, I still now will say the quote is, um, you can have help, uh, if you can help uh, enough other people get what they want, you can get what you want. The quote's not like that. It's, sorry, it's, it's exactly like that in context. It's exactly not like that in wording. And right. for his, that's probably my favorite quote in the world. And I live by that quote. And I still don't remember the exact wording. And I shared it yesterday and just shared it and, and know the quote and didn't look at what it said. So to this day, every time I share that quote in, in, in front of an audience, it either changes or it's uh, different than his original quote. But the point is what he was saying was, if you help people uh, and get them what they want, uh, you'll end up getting what you want. That's really what the quote says. So as long as I'm telling that context of the quote, yeah. and I'm close, if I say the word paraphrase, immediately paraphrase means this isn't the exact wording. 
So my point is that's what I ended up having to do because I was tired of likewise going to the screen and trying to read the quote or going and looking at notes or what have you. So yeah, I feel, feel you because uh, you lose a momentum that's hard to get back. Yeah. And you want to have that impact because the quote itself is impactful. And that Zig Ziglar quote is one of my favorites as well, because indeed, when we do help other people, that's how we can get what we want, whether it be promotion, whether it be uh, connections in relationships, whether it be maybe some information. If we are constantly in a place of how can I serve, we come from a very different place of leadership in leading each other to success. Because one of the things that I find very interesting you know, people will say, well, I'm growing and doing all these things that other people aren't coming along with me or they're not learning. What am I supposed to do? They're going to get left behind. But if you're following your purpose and your calling, you're going to continue on that path to grow. And you can pull other people who are along your journey so that when you get to that point, you don't feel like the lone ranger. Like, why get to the top and be alone? right? So I'd love to hear your take on that. So it's actually very interesting because I used to, and I, you know what, someday I might go back to using the term, but I used to use the term enlightened super achievers and taught in referencing high achieving leaders or what have you. And the reason I, I was all intentional, the reason I got away from high achievers is because I found that it had negative connotation to some people. They'd remember that person they worked with in sales who stepped all over everybody. And so that's why I changed it from high achievers to super achievers to get away from the negative. Then I wanted the enlightened part because it's almost like an enlightened millionaire gives money back. They do things for other people versus just, you know, for themselves. And so the enlightened super achievers, how I define it, and this goes back to your point exactly, is Zig Ziglar used to say, since I referenced them already, I'll see you at the top. And so at top of the mountain, basically, he was saying. And so when people, when I, people said, what's an enlightened super achiever? I would say, think about the Jack Canfields, the Zig Ziglar's. These are the, the leaders who didn't get to the top of the mountain on their own. They pulled people up. They pushed people up. They even didn't care if the person got up on top of them. And first, their goal was just to bring as many people to the mountain, the top of the mountain as they could. So my take is the same as yours. And I even have, like I say, a phrase for them, which is enlightened super achievers or a, a title for them. And to me, that's the difference. There's, there's high achievers that achieve a lot of success and, you know, and they're fine with it. And maybe most people are just like, oh, well, that's their thing. They're driven, what have you. And then there's people that say, you know what, why don't I try to do it and also help other people do it at the same time? And so not saying one is right or wrong, but every single day of the week, if you ask me who I want to surround myself with, it's the enlightened super achiever that wants to bring other people to the top. And to, my, to that point, that's what I want to do. I mean, I want to help pull people to the top. And even if sometimes it means which it often does, they get more of the spotlight than I do. And, you know, maybe that side is because I was a fan of uh, Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich. I was a fan of his work. And, you know, there's people that have said negative and positive about Napoleon Hill and people that questioned if he did all those interviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, I tend to think that it'd be hard to write a book that profound and that, you know, without make, it'd be easier to do the interviews, just do them than make it up. But there's always going to be people say, oh, I don't know. And, and it's hard to, from back in the 30s, you know, to now research that type of stuff. But the point is what I loved about Napoleon Hill is that, and Dale Carnegie did this too in his writings, but they shined the light on everybody else and rarely ever even said, one of the things that I do, they, the, almost the whole work was, uh, when I was speaking to Thomas Edison, here's what he does, not here's what Napoleon Hill does in this situation. And so every now and then he would say, and he, they even didn't even say their name, they would say the author 
They didn't even say me. They would say, uh, the author has blah, blah, blah. And so it was like they were pros at understanding that if they, again, the Zig Ziglar thing, if they help everybody else, it'll come back to them some way, somehow. And so I think they helped uh, humble and give me, humble me and give me humility that it's okay if somebody else, if I do something and somebody else gets a bigger spotlight. And not to digress too much, but I'm working on a documentary right now uh, with James Redfield, who wrote The Celestine Prophecy. Now, that book sold over 20 million copies. First and foremost, I mean, he's had a bigger dent in terms of reaching more people than me. 20 million people just with that one book. And by the way, that's just bought copies. That doesn't mean, this doesn't include used in everything, used bookstores. I heard estimates- Or libraries. Of, and libraries. And I've heard an estimate of, of over 100 million people read the book, which makes sense when you factor in all those other ways of getting it. Uh, and even pass longs, people just give it to their friend. And that was the kind of book it was. So, but my point of this is he had a really big um, impact and that book was put out quite a while ago and he put out other books, but he's one of those, you know, he's a type of person who waits for the book to be ready, writes it, <clears throat> does the, you know, the publicity required, but then kind of sort of disappears. But my point of this is him and I are working on a documentary. We're kind of, we're, for lack of a better way of saying it, we're equal partners and producers of it. But I realized the documentary is him. It, it's about his project, his life's work, not me. So I'm just the guy who's facilitating influencers who are sharing their story and James's story getting on to a documentary. The end result is I'll come along for a bit of the ride, but the truth is I certainly won't be the, I'll be the least person, I'll be the person that gets the least amount of profile out of that documentary, regardless of how big it, big it gets. Because I've even said for the interviews I'm doing with influencers to share their insights, I'm thinking personally, I said to James, I think I should come out of those interviews. I'll do the interviews and we'll tape me in case, but I think I should be uh, introducing the documentary, interviewing James for his segments, but in between, let's just have the influencers talk as if they're talking to the audience. So that means I'm at editing myself out other than just the interviews with James. So immediately, those influencers who already have a big name are gonna again get more of a splash than me. The point of this whole thing is, it'll come back to me, and even if it doesn't, who cares? I'm still part of a super exciting project. But I think sometimes, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I think sometimes people sometimes have a hard time with connecting and realizing that you don't need to be the star to still get the reward. Absolutely. And you know what I just realized, maybe you already know this, but this just hit me, is that you've had this, and I talk about a golden thread that goes throughout our lives. So your golden thread is even from the fringe before you started being a speaker to that writing and producing of the play, writing your own part, you know, being back to the audience but here you ended up you know doing the comedy and getting into speaking and here you are again writing and producing and being in that space again and even though you're pulling yourself out i have a hunch that there's going to be something very significant to turn you around on stage to bring something out to the people oh well, thank you so much and i will say this is kind of just an interesting side note but for people that because um, not everybody we know does, but believe in the idea of mediums and psychics and all that kind of stuff. My mother and my girlfriend are both, uh, you know, and this term, I use it endearingly, some people might not, but they're both woo-woo. You know, they both, my mother, uh, my mother reads tarot cards, my girlfriend's a master Reiki, um, a Reiki master, rather. Uh, but the thing is, is that because of that, even though some of these things, I went along for the ride. You know, I just kind of went and said, well, whatever. And like, I, I had, um, balance problems years ago when I was 
in sales in Alberta. And so I started seeking out things. I went through the normal medical system, didn't find any answers. Eventually, I found my answers in yoga. Well, I was the exact opposite of a person that would have done yoga before that. But when you can go from, you can barely stand on two feet with your eyes open to being able to do tree pose. So people that don't know that yoga, you're standing on one foot and balancing, being able to do that with your eyes closed in two months from not being able to stand up straight, you start becoming a believer quickly. And so, you know, short, you know, long story short is I started believing in, uh, in some of those things. And so, you know, for me, what happened is that, um, well, first of all, even with, with the, the project with James, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff he teaches, I wouldn't, you know, 30 years ago, I would have been like, what? And so I've, I've been uh, a passenger for this stuff. But to go back to the point, I had a, a psychic medium. I don't even know if that's her term. She reads auras. Uh, but she said to me years ago, and she said, I don't know the timeline. She said all these things that all came true. One, just to give people a perspective, she said, um, have you ever been to Sedona in Arizona? And I said, no. And she said, well, I have a vision of you riding a horse in Sedona at some point in the near future. And at the point, no trip was planned to Sedona. Got together with my girlfriend. We decided to move across the country, well, move across the country in Canada, but decided to drive through the U.S. to do it. We went to 26 states in 16 days uh, as part of our tour. But on my 40th birthday, without me knowing, she paid for a horseback riding lesson for us in Sedona. And I have a picture of me on the mountain in Sedona with the sun, you know, the, the sun going down. <laughs> And this happened like four months after the psychic said this. And there was no plan in Sedona at all. Now, you could say I willed that, but how could I will her to buy me the horseback? She's a horse, she's a horse person. I'm not even a horse person. So how could I will something I'm not even into? Uh, but what I will do is uh, when I know this is airing, Deborah, when it first airs, I'll put the picture on my Facebook of me riding the horseback. Okay. But that being said, the whole point of the story is she said, I see you linking up with somebody. Um, I don't know where, but in southern U.S., the southern U.S., and it's going to be, you're going to be part of a massive project and it's going to be a massive spotlight on you. So is this the project? I don't know, but I will tell you one thing when I made sure from that point forward, I watched for any kind of coincidences that could lead in that direction, but I still didn't force them. I just said, whatever happens, happens. Right. And this come to play that way. But to that point, you know, is, is this maybe that coincidence? Is this maybe the thing? And I say coincidence, I don't believe in them, but is this the thing that was the, that was, she was talking about? Maybe. So when you said about this could be a big splash, I don't know. Uh, but again, I'm trusting the process. And I still don't know any different than to, spot, to shine the spotlight on other people. Because I just really feel at the end of the day, you get so much. It's like volunteering your time. By me doing this, I'm getting so much of this. And in fact, uh, I did an interview with um, Sharon and Bram, who's the Sharon, Lois, and Bram, who wrote the song Skin and Marine oh, Keating. Yeah. I just did an interview with them recently, and the end of the interview, when the interview was turned off, she said, how do you get paid to do this? Like, how, I, don't, I don't understand. You're, you know, you came to our place, you paid for the trip. How, how did you get paid to do this? And, I mean, that, there's, that's too long of a story to say the different ways that that's leveraged into stuff that comes in. But the point of the story is, is that I choose to go and do that stuff where I'm even paying to do it to shine the spotlight on others because it's a passion. I love doing it. But at the end of the day, I can tell you anything I've done that way, I've always done, not always, but I've done for free and it's still come back to me and I can still even, I can even measure and show you where it came back to me. So it, it comes back, but the, the point is, is that, yeah, it's, um, I think people don't realize the power in shining the spotlight in others. And what usually happens, and it's not intentional, is those are the people that post on your page and say, you got to connect with this guy or girl. You got to check out their work. It still comes back to you, but I think people are scared to trust the process because it's not as it's not short term gain. I see stuff happening that I gave four years ago 
and somebody saying, Corey, remember you did that for me? I got an opportunity for you. So I digress, but I say, yeah, thank you so much for saying big things coming. From my end, I just say, you know what? I trust the process and what happens, happens. Okay, so that leads me into one of our last questions is how do you go about trusting the process? Because it's, it's a term that I've heard, you know, from coaching, from speaking, and it's not an easy thing to do because <laughs> we want to have so much control over what's going on. So what, is, what do you do to trust the process? So here's where I believe in measuring things. So I don't believe in, and again, I say I don't believe in, I mean, I, I guess the best way to say it is I'm not, um, I'm, I'm a mixture between, I'm, I'm practical woo-woo, <laughs> I guess I'll say now. I've been trained to become woo-woo. But, but for me, I also believe in measuring. So I also believe in saying, okay, but, but what was the result? So I believe in results. So here's what I can tell you. And this is the hard part, it's still. But when people say trust the process, what I'm meaning is trust the process and then test the process. And also I'm saying trust it for a short term. So if, you, if you'd rather you know, try the scarcity mindset and not help others and all that kind of stuff, um, but you still think, well, I'm listening to this interview. Why don't I try this thing at least for a bit? What I'm saying is try it for 30 days. Just give to other people. Just try once a day. I don't mean just give once a day, but just try, you know, every day, say, make a timeline, say, I'm going to give to 10 people today or whatever. And do that for 30 days. And then ask yourself at the end of 30 days, outside of the fact that you're going to feel better for doing it, are people now talking about me more? Are people sharing my stuff more and on and on? Right. So what I'm saying is not just trust the process, I guess, test the process as well. But what I can tell you is that you can measurably, so this is the key thing, you can literally measurably go, this came from there. Like if you go backwards, once, so once thing, so trust the process and test it for 30 days. Then you'll see a few things happen. Then if you say, you know what, I want more of this and keep testing it, what I'm getting at is you're gonna be able to then go, wow, I trusted the process and this is what happened. So if I give, since I've talked about it a couple of times, it's easy to use that story, but if I use the example of James Redfield, here's an example. So I did one interview with him. My girlfriend actually read the book. It changed her life. She said, you need to reach out to James. So I trusted her, reached out to him. We did an interview. The funny part is the first interview was done in a food court. Now he wasn't in a food court. It was a phone interview and I was in a food court. And so that was interesting. And I trusted that I could, what happened when I couldn't get to the office I was going to in time. So I trusted it was better to do it than to cancel the interview. Then I noticed he was going to be in LA same time as me reached out, we did our first live in-person interview. So it kept evolving, the relationship, and just kept evolving from there, and there's a whole you know, story behind it, the evo evolution. But here's the interesting part. So I trusted the process of I'm going to, I like this guy's work, I believe what he's talking about, I'm gonna continue to share his work, and I'm gonna make it a series, I'm gonna do more with it. But now if I look at the, the whole thing, so I shine the light on him, I'm reaching out about this documentary, and just to give you an example, I won't name drop because it's not fair to the person who did this, but um, so what happens is I am, in, okay, I'll say it this way, this, this leaves it ambiguous, but it, it gives people a, a point of reference. Um, in the discussions of uh, scheduling a, one of the interviews for the documentary with one of the sharks from Shark Tank. And so that person's publicist, who works privately for, separately from him, um, I was connected with him to start to make this happen. Well now he said, who's on your wish list besides this person? So then I sent him a wish list and then he goes, okay, I know him. I know her. I know him. I know her. I know her. I know her. Well, why don't we, you know, try to line this up. And then as we're talking yesterday, and this is one of these mysterious coincidences I'm talking about. This is even more trippy as we're talking yesterday and you'll, you'll respect this because of what I'm going to share with you. But I said, uh, we got talking and somehow the new media summit came up and I said, oh yeah, well I was, I think, oh, I know what it was. We're talking with Steve Olsher and Mike Koenigs 
Steve puts on the New Media Summit. Mike was the guest speaker last time. So I mentioned that because, oh, Mike Koenigs was on his entre entrepreneur profile. This guy has an entrepreneur profile. And when he was scrolling down, Mike Koenigs was there. I said, oh, do you know Mike? And then we got talking and it came around to New Media Summit. He goes, what? You're at New Media Summit? I said, yeah, why? He said, I want a free ticket. I didn't go. I gave it to my wife. She was at the same one as you. Gets bigger than this. There's two people. Steve got us to do this. And you, you might, uh, well, Steve got us to do this. Uh, we stared at each other's eyes uh, for five minutes standing across from somebody deep into their soul, that type of thing. Yeah, I've done that exercise. Okay, so two people. I did it with two people at that whole event in three days. His wife was one of the two. No way. And she seeked me out. Like she went, she just walked around the room and said, you, and came over. And now, previous, the other part, the, no context, you know, there's no context there. Earlier, we were waiting for the tram to get there together. So we did meet each other before that. But the point is, we were waiting for the tram. Five people were there. She was one of the five. Then we were the only one of the two people that did that. Yesterday, I'm talking to him. This came up. His wife's there. She gets on the computer. I'm on the computer. We're like, mind blown. So, but my point is, look at all those connections. And that's, by the way, one branch of all the connections that have come out of the documentary of James, which came out of that one interview where I trusted the process that even though I wasn't being paid to do the interview and I was shining the light on James, that something will come out of it eventually. And even if it doesn't, I still get to do an exciting interview with a guy who had one of the most monumental life-changing books ever. Yeah. So and just that interaction alone can change your life. Yeah. And so I hope that that helps. Here's what I will say too. I should have had this one other thing when I said, you know, test, uh, so I'm going to hope maybe I'm coining this for the first time, but not only trust the process, test the process. Uh, and then, cause that just came to me. So I don't know. I never heard it anywhere. So, uh, but the other thing I'll say is that uh, the other thing you need to do and, and, you know, maybe, and this is a plug, uh, I guess for James's book, but if you read his book, even if you only read chapter one, the first chapter is about meaningful coincidences, mysterious coincidences, otherwise known as synchronicity. So here's one thing I started doing a while back is I started watching for those, keep paying attention to them. And so when somebody says trust the process, what I'll say is trust the process, test the process, and also watch for and act on meaningful coincidences. Because uh, there's a contact, for example, in Florida, and I can say that she's in, in my program as well, uh, Elise uh, Rothman, who I met at the Hay House Conference. My girlfriend met her and then introduced me to her. Normally what I would have done in the past is I would have just let that coincidence go at the door. I would have just said, nice to meet you. We would have talked. Maybe we change cards, never talk again. Right. But I just reread the book. And so I was keeping my eye out for them. So I kept in contact. The end result is I've been her client twice. She signed up for both of my programs. She's been on our show. And she even, she even invited us to stay at her place uh, in the villages in Florida. Twice now. Wow. My family. She's worked with Shelly, my girlfriend. All of that came from one chance meeting at Hay House at a conference that we actually, actually kept in touch with and followed up on. So watch your meaningful coincidences, trust the process, test the process. That's my new. I think that's a TED talk in your future, actually. It could be one. I like, I like that. <laughs> so I should be marking that down, but I guess, I guess I'll, I'll have it from the interview. So Yeah, it makes me think of the movie Serendipity. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites with John Cusack, where they have this random meeting coincidental meeting which i again don't believe anything's an accident people come into your life for a reason whether they're a messenger whether a lesson is to be heard and i just want to thank you so much corey for sharing um and i love how the interview went you know we don't have any set questions we're just going with the flow of what comes from the organic conversation and some powerful lessons and one of the biggest things is about trusting the process 
trying it out for 30 days. Go and do it for 30 days. Test it. See if it works. Prove yourself wrong. I love that. Prove yourself wrong that it's not going to work. And then at the end, okay, maybe it works, maybe it didn't. But you'll be surprised. There will always be something that comes out of it. I'll, say, I'll add this, Deborah. Most people won't be able to quit it. <laughs> It'll be like that, that new love addiction. They won't be able to quit it once they see all the things that come out of it. I say most. I mean, I, it's very rare, I think, that somebody won't have, as you said, a bunch of stuff come out of it that makes them go, wait, I've been missing this all along. Yeah. So what would be a final, actually, I want to ask you one last quick question and then please add in your final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience. But my final question is, what does it take to step into being a person of influence? Such a great question. And so we, we danced around it a little bit. So I'll say, I'll, 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 because we already talked about it, I'll, I'll add to it. So first of all, it takes what I was talking about, about giving to others. So now I'm going to change the wording of that to give you a different, uh, I'll say maybe a new uh, one as well, which is that it takes delivering value to others without expecting anything in return. So now when I say this, I mean, there's influencers that get to be influencers many different ways. So this isn't, you know, an absolute, but for me, the way that's worked best for me was to give value for others. Now, when I say this, I don't want to confuse this with saying only shine the spotlight on others. You can, if you decide not to shine the spotlight on others, because that's for certain people too, interviewers, typically, um, when you watch any interview, even on the news, they've chosen, now they probably don't mind getting the spotlight themselves, but they've cho chosen to draw the nuggets at other people and give them the spotlight. So that's one aspect of it, but it doesn't have to be that. You might decide, I want to be the spotlight, but it still doesn't have to stop you from giving value to others. And so what do I mean by giving value? It can be as simple as, let's say, uh, Gary Vee. Let's say you want to get on his radar. It could be as simple as sharing, uh, reading Gary Vee's book and then putting together some quotes and sharing. This is my, you know, my top 10 favorite quotes from Gary Vee, one today and one for the next 10 days. I can promise you Gary Vee, well, I can't promise you. Sorry, I'll correct that. You can never promise. But I can, I can say with a lot of confidence that Gary Vee is going to shout out to you. If you do that for 10 solid days with 10 quotes of his shining the light. Maybe I'll even test that after this interview with Gary Vee. But you're probably going to get a shout out. So in other words, these influencers that are already have their influence and they already have their network, if you give value to them, and that doesn't have to be sharing their stuff, but that could be it, um, whatever that might be, or even just maybe sending them direct messages saying, I love this article and thought of you, or I saw your article here and I wanted to uh, tell you I shared it with my network, whatever that could be, but deliver value for other people, especially influencers. And I think you'll find, you'll find you start climbing the rung of influence. Secondly, even it doesn't have to be celebrities or influencers. Even if you give value to others, like your clients and say, Hey, thought of you with this article, thought of you with this video. That's what's going to propel you to influence because you're automatically influencing that one person if they read the article and take action. Especially if they take action, right? Because that one article might have one nugget that shifts their business, shifts the way they lead, shifts the way they parent. No, it's just one idea that can be the shift. Absolutely. How, how can people learn more from you? So you asked about a closing, uh, a closing comment, and I would just say, and I'll tie this into how they can learn more about me, sure. but uh, the closing comment would be, the question I ask at the end of every interview typically is, if you could jump into a time machine, go back 20 years, and give yourself one piece of life advice, based on what you've learned in the years since, what would you tell yourself? So what I would say to people is ask yourself that question, write down the answer, and don't wait 20 years, act on it now. Um, 
you know, and, and I say this, by the way, I should correct that because somebody could get confused with that. I mean, even if you're not there yet, you know, you might only be 19. And I'm saying even ask yourself, what do you think? Advice, life advice. So for example, trust the process. We just said could be one piece of life advice. So what I'm saying is do the exercise. If you're, and if you're 40 now and you will go back and tell yourself, these are things to do 20 years, then make sure you're still doing it today and make sure you keep doing it. And maybe ask yourself, what do you think you would say later? Your, you know, what do you think you'd say when you're 60, but going back to 40 and start doing it now. So I would tell people to do that exercise. If you want more about that, my TEDx talk, uh, what would you say to your younger self, which is the newer one that I haven't promoted properly. Uh, that one, uh, I go through that in, in, it's my shortest TEDx talk. It's less than five minutes. So you can even check out that TEDx talk to learn more about that, doing that exercise. And then I would say, um, basically probably the best way to learn more about me is to read my writings and stuff like that. So how about I'll, I'll do a giveaway. Uh, I'll say for um, your listeners, Deborah, and I'll probably do this on some other shows soon too, but you're going to be the first one I've announced this. Um, if people want it, they can grab a copy of, since we talked about speaking, uh, my book, the book of public speaking, they can grab a digital copy of it. Uh, and it's easy website to remember if they want to go there to grab a copy right now, the book of public speaking.com. So the That's book is super easy. <laughs> yeah. The book is called the book of public speaking. The website's the book of public speaking. Dot com. So if you go there now, you can grab a free book. And it's not like one of these six-page e-books. It's a, it's a real deal book. Six interviews with world-class speaking superstars talking about what they've learned in the speaking trenches. And then quotes by people in our program sharing their thoughts on speaking. And then the first section, some stuff by me about what I've learned. So grab a free book. I think that's how you learn a lot about a person. I will add that if, if speaking is not your thing, then just uh, go visit you know, either that website and you'll still see some of my bio or the last part is you could go to thatspeakerguy.com and that's all the other stuff for me. Absolutely. And go check out Corey's TEDx talks because I know that there will be a trust the process one coming out very soon. I have a feeling. <laughs> I'm making notes as soon as we end this, end this interview. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and giving so much value to our audience. I, I appreciate you um, so much. And I, I've learned so much so far. Um, along my journey of getting to know you and the process that you take people through. Oh, well, thank you, Deborah. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm really excited to continue watching your journey. So thanks for all the great stuff you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And for everyone listening or watching us on YouTube, please take time to share this with family, friends, colleagues, because it will help shift them and position them as a leader of influence. Maybe it'll help them trust their process a little bit more instead of wanting to be in control and wondering why there's resistance. Or maybe they just need some openness to how do I structure my PowerPoints a little bit better? But by doing that and sharing that with other people, you are helping to be an influence, creating ripple in the world. And I also want you to remember if you're on YouTube, click on the bell so you get notified of all the great videos and podcast chats that I'm having with these influencers who are making a difference in the world. Otherwise, go over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com where you can learn more and download the 21 Habits High Achievers Kick to Achieve Success. And now I think I might have to change the title to Super Achievers. Um, but we'll speak more on that at another time. As Mahama Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And as always, I wish you to have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.